Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's just awesome to be back again. I've been uh, with you uh, a couple times this last year as we've been in some time of transition as a church family here at Temple. And so it's a real treat always for me to come back to my old church stomping grounds. Uh, believe it or not, it's actually been 11 years since I was pastoring here at Temple, which just kind of floors me. Uh, I know I've aged. None of you have. I recognize that just looking at you this morning. But uh, 11 years, and we spent 11 years here uh, serving the Lord. Uh, in fact, I had, my kids were all home at different times this summer, and they took, their, uh, uh, they took a trip here with their significant others to show them the stomping grounds of where they grew up uh, out in Briggs Grove and in Sarnia. And yeah, so some very fond memories. Good to be back with you this morning. But I've been serving, as many of you know, these last 11 years. I've been serving at our fellowship national head office, as serving as our national president uh, uh, for our association of churches, some over 500 churches right across Canada, and about 85 missionaries around the world that I get a chance to go visit. And our chaplaincy ministry has just seen explosive growth, growing from 27 chaplains to 136 chaplains in the last seven years. So God's doing really remarkable things through our churches into chaplaincy, into missionary service. We're seeing recruitment uh, since the pandemic. It's been incredible. A recruitment boom of people wanting to go to the mission field that God has sort of, in that pandemic, changed the trajectory of their life and vocational career, and we're sending off people all over the world. And we've also seen a real uptick on church planting. In the last decade, we've seen 106 churches planted amongst our churches here in Canada. So be encouraged. God's doing a wonderful thing through our fellowship of churches, and I trust that you will become more and more aware of that by picking up some literature. In the foyer, I have a table there with literature on all the different things our churches collectively together through our national fellowship are seeking to accomplish for God's glory. Pick up something. Learn something new about this movement that you may know nothing about. You may, know, no, you're, you may not know that you're uh, a part of a much larger organization. There are some 80,000 Fellowship Baptist people Sunday mornings gathering in these churches and uh, serving the Lord. But I encourage you to come by my tables. Come say hi. Uh, our latest magazine, Summer Magazine, the national magazine Thrive, is on church planting and tell you some great stories about what's going on with our missionaries and chaplains and our churches. And so make sure you pick up one of those. And the only other thing I'll make mention of is one brochure related to our child sponsorship program. Uh, in 2019, we began the sponsorship program. And very similar to how Compassion and World Vision function, the Fellowship Child Sponsorship is an opportunity to come alongside and adopt a child, so to speak, through a $35 a month, similar to the other agencies. We have five different uh, uh, different areas, uh, we have five different programs in four different countries. Uh, just a few months ago, I was visiting Casa Hogar, which is a home for children near, very close to Sequacapeki in Honduras. And Marilyn and I sponsor a boy there named Gabriel, and I was able to spend some time with Gabriel. But that's in a marvelous ministry for marginalized children who are being cared for and are coming to the Lord. We also have two institutions in Sri Lanka, in the south of the 
the country and the east of the country, facilities that bring in children for education uh, and also vocational training for men and women, as well as church planting in these two areas that are largely a Hindu area and a Buddhist area. We also, our newest uh, uh, orphanage is in Dominican Republic. 75, approximately 75 Haitian children are being cared for in this home in the Dominican Republic. And this October, I'm flying to Lebanon, and I'll be seeing two of the institutions that we support as a fellowship in Beirut, Lebanon. Cedar Home, which cares for young girls who are marginalized or have been let out of their homes, and they're being cared for in a, in a home. And uh, also, uh, Clementia Learning Center, which started during the refugee crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis, where one and a half million Syrians came into a country of just about four million people in Lebanon, and a school and facility was, was uh, established, and we're caring for about 130 to 140 Syrian refugee children there. And you can sponsor any of these children and uh, be a participant in the lives of transforming these lives. And so please, I'm, I'm encouraging fellowship folks in our churches to come alongside. We are responsible for these children in these institutions. The way we do it is through these sponsorships. And so please, prayerfully consider that. Pick up an, a brochure. You can go online if you don't want a brochure. Go online and find out about it. And please pray about that. I deeply appreciate that. Well, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Father God, we are just so very grateful for every opportunity we have to open your word. It's an opportunity to be ministered through your spirit. Your word is a lamp. And I'm praying, Father, that you might illumine our hearts and our minds this morning. As we take a look at a very difficult subject this morning, of which you speak, oh Lord, you speak a lot about it in your word. The whole area of managing grief. When exceptional losses occur in our lives, Father. How best can we deal and manage these occasions so that we not, needn't have to carry baggage in years and decades to come? And so, Father, would you bless, bless your, our time? And, Father, I pray that you will minister to your children. And, Father, you'll do your special work in the hearts of some people this morning who are struggling, Father, as a result of grief in recent days. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word she said, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Death. Some of us have experienced it through the COVID, the pandemic. Family members, I lost an aunt to COVID, death. It's a wound that all of us will have to deal with at some point, in our own lives, obviously, but amongst family members and dear friends. The sting of death, the scripture speaks of this as touching every single one of us in our lives. The human response can be summed up in a well-known phrase shared by a 16th century writer named John Donne. And I quote him, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main, 
Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. Death visits all of us, and grief will be our response. But grief is not only unique to the emotions that we will experience upon the death of a loved one. Grief can visit us in all kinds of occasions of tremendous loss. After horrible accidents, marital breakdown, our dreams that we've had for years are dashed. Disappointments, impending divorces, job losses, wayward children, medical trauma, emotional meltdowns, financial reversals. All of these occasions, these occasions of significant loss will bring grief. Every last one of them. We will know some form, some pronounced or lesser form of grief after each and every one of these occasions. So it might be said it would be very wise for the child of God to go on a grief management course. If we're going to experience it multiple times in life, we better know how to deal with it. Or we're going to be carrying some baggage. The problem is there's more than one course available. In fact, there are many courses available when it comes to grief management. The scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, those who die, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. The implication of this verse is, I mean, it's certainly inferring itself in the verse, that there is more than one way to grieve. And in fact, there are some ways in which you can grieve that will give you no hope. But Paul writes, you can grieve in a way unlike other individuals where you can end up knowing the hope that we can have in Christ. And so this morning, I want to contrast the two. I want to contrast what, you know, our culture, our society is telling us about how to grieve. The, the, the conventional wisdom that is made available to us through the myriad of messages that we're bombarded with daily, year after year, decade after decade, through movies and TV and our grandmothers and our teachers and, and uh, Instagram and TikTok. All of these things are throwing messages on this is how you grieve. Very subtly. And we start to believe it. But they're all... You know, many of them are just not right. I want to contrast the conventional wisdom from our culture on how to grieve, how to manage grief, with a biblical approach. I think that's an important thing for us to know. How are we to grieve according to the Word of God? How best? What, is there a healthy way? Is there a better way to manage grief when these inevitable losses come my way? I mean, society is, has done a lot of study on this in the last several decades. A lot of good material is out there on grief that wasn't available just, you know, a few decades ago. Available to just people, but also available to uh, pastoral caregivers and psychologists and, and counselors and doctors to help people know how to grieve. I mean, one of the most famous books is Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying. 
where she identifies the stages of grief, seven stages. And these stages have helped doctors and psychologists, pastors, to help grief-stricken people to walk through grief well. What are the seven stages? Denial, isolation, guilt, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance, final acceptance. But the purpose of this morning is to be, I'm really less interested on what uh, caregivers are supplying as the way in which to grieve, but what is just the everyday conventional wisdom that we sense through just living in this culture, we sense as the way to grieve. Or maybe you've not given this any thought, maybe you've had no occasion to grieve in a very long time. I hope this will be a fresh reminder. You know, I see myself as a pretty ordinary person. I've grown up in this culture now over five decades, and I've been bombarded with these messages. And just like you, I've probably inculcated them unintentionally in some ways into my life, but they're not necessarily biblical approaches to grief. One evening I was home late from work. I was, a, I was in high school, I was 18 years old. I worked on a golf course as a greenskeeper. I was tired been a long day. I was up before 6 a.m. because these mental golfers go and golf before the sun comes up, and I got to cut the greens for them. And I walk in after 6 o'clock, but mom had supper in the oven. She brought it out, put it on the table. I was gobbling down my dinner, chatting with mom, and then I heard this screech outside the house in this yelp, and I knew it was my dog, Duke. I dropped my fork, and I ran. My brother had been walking Duke down the street, and Duke had chased after something and got in the road, and a vehicle came and hit him, and I, I ran up to my brother, and Duke was laying there on the side of the road. He was alive, looking up at me in pain, but the whole rear end wasn't working anymore. The legs were done. And my dad wrapped him up in a blanket, and he took Duke, and he put him in the back seat of our car, and he said, I'll take him to the vet. No one has to make the decision except for me. And Duke didn't come home. He went to sleep. And what did we do? Later, we all got in a car, my brother and my mom and dad. We went to a, a kennel and we... Duke and Sheba. Step one in society's grief management program, replace your loss. Once you have a new dog, you don't think so much about the old dog anymore. Two years later, I was dating a young girl, seriously. We'd been in a relationship for three years. I thought she might actually become my wife, and she dumped me. Whoa. Can you imagine that? Someone dumping Steve Jones. I was devastated. <laughs> devastated. <laughs> and I remember one of my buddies, I was in seminary, this goes to show you the caliber of pastors we're putting out there. He basically said to me, Steve, don't worry, there's plenty of other fish in the sea. <laughs> plenty of other fish in the sea. Step two in society's grief management program, bury your feelings. Bury your pain. You know, most people learn these two steps very early in life. Very early in life. Uh, you know, bury your feelings, replace your loss. That's pretty early stuff. And we have been carrying baggage on our backs for decades. 
because we didn't deal with this stuff. Three years later, I was, uh, I was uh, working again in a, uh, I was a pastoral intern, a student, working in a strange town, Montreal, in a little Baptist church for the summer as a student. And my mom gave me a call and she said, Stephen, Nana is dead. Nana was my maternal grandmother and I loved my Nana. She wasn't that old, you know, 70 something. I was devastated again because I was in a strange town with people I've just known for less than a month as a student intern. I, I wasn't going to be with family. I wasn't going to, the UK, you know, to, to England for the funeral. And I was very much alone trying to work that stuff out, grieving alone. You know, Step three in society's grief management program is grieve alone. Often society, a person who's lost someone will say, well, don't, don't bother him yet. You know, leave, give him some space. You know, give him, give him some space. You can talk to him. Just, you know, leave him to be. Grieve alone. Three years later, I was in my first vocational ministry. I was a youth pastor at uh, Morningstar in Scarborough. And, you know, I've been in the role for six weeks, and my dad now, my dad gives me a call and says, Stephen, I say, yeah, dad. And he says, your mother's dead. What? What? Mom, you know, she's one of my best friends. She was my, one of my best friends. 54 years old, what? 36 years ago, yesterday, mom passed away from a lousy blood clot dislodged itself, pulmonary embolism, never woke up. Wow. Devastated. But people come along and say, hey, you know, give it time. Give it some time, Steve. It'll get better. Step four in society's grief management program, time is the healer. Time is a healer. Six years later, I'm serving in another church in London, Ontario, again, a youth pastor. And Marilyn, my wife, gives me a call. She says, Steve, I'm at the, I'm at the uh, doctor's office. She can't hear the baby's heartbeat. I'm going to emergency. I'm going to have an emergency ultrasound. And later that day, our little boy died in utero. I can't tell you how devastating that was for Marilyn and for me. Unbelievable. I never got to hold Joshua in my hands. I never got to walk down the beach with him on my shoulders. I never got to wrestle with him in the backyard. I never got to see him walk down the aisle marrying his bride. Lots of regrets. Lots. Lots of things I've missed. And society, step five in society's grief management program is you got to live with regrets. So let's review. The conventional wisdom society our culture gives to us related to managing grief, replace your losses, bury your feelings, grieve alone, time is a healer, and live with regrets. Does that sound familiar? Or some sense of it? Because that's what you've been bombarded with for year after year after year. In John James and Frank Cherry's book, they have identified these five steps as the common conventional wisdom for grief management in our culture in North America today. The result is a lot of us are walking around with wounds, 
because we've never really dealt with grief. Whatever the loss might be, might not be death, might be something else. But there have been tremendous losses in your life, and you've not dealt with them in a healthy way. And the baggage is pronounced. We're often unable to recover and rebuild our lives after devastating losses. And it too often jades our focus on life itself. And that's why later in life, as a pastor, I met lots of middle-aged, older people who had bitterness, unresolved issues. It resulted in bitterness, a tainted view on life itself. The focus is just not focused the way Jesus wants it to be. But if I'm to grieve right, if I'm going to follow the word and ask the Spirit of God to give me strength, I can recover from loss, from tremendous, devastating loss. It's possible to recover, even grow, and become stronger as a result of the loss. As Rick Warren used to say, don't waste your pain. Don't wa- You're going to go through pain. Don't waste the opportunity. Don't waste your pain. You know, a relief pitcher 30 years ago named Donnie Moore could not seem to get over the loss. He anguished over the loss for the American uh, League uh, pennant race, and he lost the game. He was an ace relief pitcher. He lost the game. He couldn't get over it. The grief was so much, he shot his wife and killed himself. Now, compare that to Dave Drabecki, who around the same time in, the, in, in baseball history, he himself not only lost his career, not only lost his livelihood, he lost his pitching arm. The cancer had, in, uh, had gone into his arm, and the only thing they could do was to amputate his arm. He lost everything. And yet he was able to rekindle his life. He was able to energetically rebuild his life because he centered his life on Christ and followed other kinds of steps towards recovery from grief. Recovery from grief is super important. It maintains our health, our emotional, our spiritual health as believers in Christ. Many of us have tasted this grief management Uh, approach that society has made available to us, and we have found it wanting. It hasn't satisfied our souls. It's left a bittersweet taste. But I want us to address now the approach that 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 the Bible gives us related to grief management. But before we do that, I want you to bow your head. As we go to God's Word, I want you to prepare your heart. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? Would you do that for me? And just spend a moment praying for someone in your life who you know is grieving. They're struggling. They're really struggling. Pray for them right now. That what you're going to hear this morning may be an opportunity, if you share this with them, for them to grow. Or maybe it's you. In your silent prayer, you're not sure Jesus even cares. Tell him that. And ask him to prepare your heart right now with what you're about to hear. That a new song might emerge in your heart. And so step one. Society's approach to grief management. Step one, replace your loss. God's approach... It's not about replacing your loss. It's about reviewing 
the loss, reviewing your loss. In John chapter 11, we have a remarkable story of uh, a time of grief in Jesus' own life and amongst a family that were very close to Jesus, some of his very best friends. If you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to be skimming through this very quickly because we haven't got a lot of time this morning. <clears throat> so just, I'll just be throwing out different verses from John 11. The story is uh, Jesus has lost his very close friend, Lazarus. And uh, verse 3 suggests that Mary and Martha have sent word to Jesus that his, one of his best friends, Lazarus, is about to die. Please come. Please come. In verse 6, Jesus doesn't seem to rush. Where it indicates in verse 6 that, he, in fact, he remains ministering in the location, in the region that he's, in fact, ministering. In fact, he spends two more days ministering before he even starts to make his way to Bethany, the village of Bethany, where Lazarus is dying. And we read in verse 17, it's not all the way till verse 17, that Jesus actually arrives to Bethany and he finds Lazarus, his, one of his best friends, dead. He's been dead for four days. And then Martha, her response to Jesus slowly arriving at Bethany, it's, there's indication in verse 21 that Martha's response and then her sister Mary's response indicated in verse 32, they basically are thinking, where have you been? You knew he's dying. Where have you been? And yet there's now been four days before Jesus hearing about and arriving, four days in which Martha's had opportunity to renew and gain perspective. She's been reviewing the loss, the loss of her son. And when Jesus asks her related to this, her, her, her response is quite different. Verse 22 of John 11, she says, God will give you whatever you ask. Meaning, Jesus, you can do anything in this situation. Verse 24, Martha's response to Jesus, I know that he, he being Lazarus, I know that Lazarus will rise again. And then Jesus in verse 26 says, Do you believe that I am the cross, Christ, and all those who are in Christ, all those who are followers of Christ, will rise again? This is her response in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. It took the review of her loss for her to gain that kind of perspective. Because four days earlier, that wasn't her immediate response at all. Where are you? To yes, he'll rise again. Glory to God. A seasoned counselor was asked what she advises people when they enter into grief. This was her response, and I quote her. Of course, I tell them to feel the feelings, but then I also urge people to reduce radically the pace of their lives. I urge them to review their loss, to review their loss, talk about it openly, think about it thoroughly, write about it reflectively, and pray through it. It's my experience that people want to run from their pain. They want to replace pain with another feeling as soon as they can. To recover from pain, you have to face it. You must stand in it and process it before it will dissipate. That's God's way. Instead of facing the pain, we go to the shopping center and buy a new dress. Or in my case, a new pair of pants. Or we take a holiday We try to replace the pain when we're to review the loss. Any of us running from pain today? Are you trading in your pain prematurely for some other feeling when you could have gained so much 
in the midst of the loss. Hang out in the sad place long enough to allow the full effect of the loss to settle in your soul. The second step in society's approach to grief management is bury your feelings, bury the pain. God's approach is exactly the opposite. Feel your feelings and express them. Feel your feelings and express them. Don't bury them. Don't deny them. Don't discount them. When Jesus visited the tomb of his very close friend, Lazarus, he's standing outside the tomb, and the crowd is awaiting probably something remarkable because they've heard of the of this, of this rabbi named Jesus. And even though Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he had actually warned his disciples before coming to Bethany, verse 11 of John 11, he told them, I'm from the dead. He knows he's going to do this. But even in the midst of the crowd, that's not his response. His response to Lazarus' death is verse 35 of John chapter 11, the shortest verse in the entire Bible. He wept. Why did Jesus cry? Why did he weep when he knew he, moments he's going to raise him from the dead? Time of joy and celebration. Why did Jesus weep? There's so much we could learn in that simple, short verse in the Bible. In fact, I hope that Jesus wept to teach us all how to properly respond to grief to express our feelings. I hope the fact that Jesus wept gives you permission to weep. And some men in this audience need to learn to do that, to weep. Weeping is so good for the soul, so tremendously good for the soul. Speaks volumes, these two words, he wept. Weeping is called the language of the soul. Expressing them begins our journey towards hope. You need to feel your loss. Wonderful way to express it is through weeping. You know, I was feeling pretty guilty that after my mother's death, I hadn't really done a lot of weeping, very little in fact. I assumed it was God's sufficient grace in my time of need to get through it. But it was likely just some of the old baggage of what society says about grieving that I was still living with. Three weeks after my mother's death, I got up in the wee hours, probably three in the morning, just woke up in our apartment, and I left our room, and I went into the, the bathroom, and I got in the bathroom, and I looked at the mirror, and I just sort of looked at myself for a moment, and then I just started to weep. And then the weeping became sobbing. I mean, it was uncontrollable. I was saying intellectually in my head, Steve, stop. You're, this is ridiculous. Grow up. But I couldn't. It was an involuntary response. It was, I couldn't stop it like I can't stop my heart from beating. I can't stop my lungs from gasping for air. I can't stop that. I couldn't stop sobbing. But I'll tell you something. That was the beginning of the journey to healing for me, which I revisit even now, 36 years later, missing my mom terrible. Feel your feelings. Feel your feelings. Step three of society's approach is grieve alone. God's approach, again, is quite opposite. It's grieve in community. You know, there are dozens. In fact, I, I once read about 28 instances in the New Testament of these phrases we refer to as the one another's. These are the things we're to another as believers. We're to be kind to one another. We're to spur one another on to 
to forgive one another. We're to do many things together in one another's. One of the things we're to do together is grieve. Is to grieve together. Um, the disciples learned this well. Jesus, just before his own imminent death, death, it's looming in his mind. It's weighing on him. He brings James and Peter and John together, and he takes them to a special place to spend some special time with him as he prepares, asking them to pray with him in preparation. They don't know what's going to happen, but Jesus, though, his looming death is coming. And they learned this so that after his death, where were the disciples? They were together, grieving the death of their, of their rabbi, their Messiah, grieving together in that upper room. They had learned what it meant to grieve in community. And their grief would turn to joy, just like Jesus promised it would. In John 16, verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And it turned to joy when Jesus came right through the door, right through the wall, in his resurrected state, from grief to joy. The Apostle Paul tells us how the body of Christ is to function when it comes to grief, First. Corinthians 12 and verse 21. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. We grieve best when we grieve in community. Grieving in community brings healing. It brings bondedness. And when we lost our little Joshua in utero, I was a youth pastor, pastoring at Wortley Baptist Church in London, Ontario, and that church was amazing, the way they came alongside of Marilyn and myself. I, I'm grateful to that church to this day. They did not leave us alone. At times they bugged us too much, but they grieved with us in community. Learn to do that as a church family when people have loss. It's a beautiful expression of the body of Christ working <laughs> the way it's supposed to. The fourth step of society's approach to grief management, time is a healer. God's approach is not time, the Holy Spirit is the healer. The Holy Spirit is called in John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, verse 7. He's referred to as the comforter or the counselor in other translations. In John 15, verse 26, the Spirit of God is referred to as the Spirit of truth. It is the Spirit of God who comes alongside of the born-again believer, coming alongside and bringing the truth of his word and illumining truth so you won't believe the lies that society says to you about managing grief. The spirit of truth. The, the healer is the spirit of God. I mean, years and years ago, industrials would put all their waste into these 50-gallon uh, barrels and then they would dump them into big holes. I'm sure there's holes all over Sarnia with that stuff. They would dump these barrels into these big holes and, you know, out of sight, out of mind, only to find out after decades that seepage from these barrels were contaminating the ecosystem. The water table was, was, was diseased or poisoned, and, and the crops were poisoned, and, and animals were dying. You bury grief, and the same thing happens. Just a matter of time. The hurt doesn't go away. It leaks. It leaks into our emotional systems and it contaminates our very view on life itself. The way we look at life changes drastically. We see life not the way the Spirit of God wants you to see it. We see it tainted in bitterness. So God says, review your loss, feel your feelings, grieve in community, 
Humbly ask the Spirit of God to heal your broken heart. And lastly, the fifth step, society says, live with your regrets. God says, "Uh uh-uh. If you had some unfinished business with them before they died, if you're living with some sort of regret, and maybe the person who has broken the relationship and you have a lot of loss, and they don't even know you're hurting, you don't have to live with that regret. If you get fired and you don't even know why you're getting fired and you're living with that loss and you have no opportunity to try to go back to work to find out why did I get let go? Why? I can't even say bye to people I've known for decades. If you have a friend who says no and never returns your calls anymore and you've known them for so long and you don't know why, do you live with regrets? You don't have to. You don't have to. When I was a youth pastor at Wortley in London, this was 28 years ago, a young teenage girl, about 14, 15 years old, contracted a cancer in her face. And it was, uh, it, it, it just, you know, destroyed her face. You know, and, and it's hard enough to be a 15-year-old girl in this society who all the stresses and unnecessary influences of being beautiful and all that nonsense. And she was living with this deformity and going to school with it. She was remarkable. Godly little girl. And she died. And I did the funeral at West Park Baptist because it was really close to her high school and 800 high school students showed up. It was an amazing opportunity to share Jesus and Rachel's life. But a month later, her older sister, 17-year-old, She came to me and she said, Pastor Steve, I don't know if this is theologically correct. I'm not sure if this is right, but I've continued to talk to my sister, Rachel. Is that right? Am I doing something wrong? I mean, this wasn't the occult. She wasn't hearing voices back or she wasn't doing anything like that. She was just, it was just, it was helpful for her to carry conversation with her sister. I said, There's every reason to believe that the Spirit of God is letting your sister know this. You're praying. Or maybe your guardian angel could make that available to her. But what I did know is it was helpful to her. So she wouldn't have regrets. The things that she would lose, have lost with this sister that she loved and was so close to. So close to. There's a provision given to God's people. God's people who may have unfinished business with loved ones who have died or friends who have broken off the friendship, and there's no way of getting things right with them. They don't want to talk to you anymore. There is a provision in God's word for those people who have unfinished business, and it's this. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Remember this verse. You're going to need it. Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What's inferred in this verse is the hope that you can finish your part of the unfinished business with anyone. There doesn't have to be nagging feelings. There can be closure to relationship. You don't have to carry some backpack of regret for the rest of your lives because you never got to say, I love you to that mother who was so difficult. Some of us need to cut off the backpack and give... God, our grief. Some of us need to write a letter to that estranged brother who won't return your calls or to that dead mother who, it was a struggle. 
And you need to write that letter. I've done that with people in this church when I pastored here. Writing a letter, letting it out, getting a few close friends or family members together, and sharing it, and releasing yourself from it. You don't have to live with regrets. God doesn't want you to live with regrets. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. You see, Paul immediately traces back to our problem as having you know, a wrong idea about how to deal with grief. We're ignorant of the truth. But now you're not. I've tried to share simply in five steps the steps that God wants you to follow when it comes to loss in your life. You know, someone said, behind every self-defeating behavior is a lie that we are believing. Stop believing the lies. Society is just bombarding you with messages and they're lies. Stop. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the truth. Here's the truth about those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed away. If our treasure as believers is found solely in our spouse, in our children, our grandchildren, our health, our vocation, our sporting activities, our leisure life, our travel life. If, our, if we place, really, our treasure is in all of these things, all of these things will be removed from us. We will suffer loss in every single one of these things. If these are our treasures, beware. You're setting yourself up for a lot of grief. For the believer, the devoted follower of Christ, our treasure is in Christ and Christ alone, who cannot be removed. We cannot lose him. He loves us. His love is forever. And so we place our treasure where it should be. Our heart, our first love should be in Christ and Christ alone, who we cannot lose. And in those cases, we will be capable in recovering from any loss, no matter the loss, a death, financial reversal, dashed dreams, wayward children, whatever the loss, we can recover and thrive ahead. It may not be overnight, and it may not be easy. There are dark days. But step by step, following this approach, this grief recovery approach, we can know life and life abundant once again. So what are you going to do when a friend phones you up this week and says, Bobby, my little boy, he just got killed in a car accident. What are you going to say to him, your friend? What are you going to share? What have you got that's going to help your dear friend who just lost his little boy to a tragic accident? What are you going to do when the surgeon comes out of the surgery theater with this ashen look on his face and he's been doing surgery on your wife? And you know this doesn't look good. What are you going to say to your friend when that happens? What are you going to say when your boss says to you, hey, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. It's the, it's the economic downturn. You know, got to let you go. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Tremendous loss, stress, difficulty ahead of you, disappointment ahead of you. What are you going to do? You see, the stakes are very high. Which approach to recovery are you going to choose? It's very important you choose the right approach. I hope you'll choose the Bible's approach. 
And I got a sneaking feeling that God hopes that for you as well. So God bless you. Father, we come to you and we ask you that your word applied right now through the ministry of your spirit is speaking to your children this morning. Whether here or online, Lord, you're speaking to us related to issues of loss in our lives. And I pray, Father, that we will learn the good lessons of your word and how to recover best so we might know life, as Jesus promised, life abundant. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all. God bless you.